because of the Noah movie and its inclusion of half-angel, half-human creatures, I'm going to redo what I did a couple of years ago and what I mentioned this past Sunday about Nephilim. These creatures that you have in front of you are a promotional picture for the Noah movie, and those are the Watchers, six-armed stone creatures that helped Noah build the ark. They are fallen angels that had sex with human women, and this is the offspring. The name for that being is a Nephilim. That word does not occur in the King James Bible. It occurs in the NIV and ESV and all the other modern Bible versions in two places which I'll show you. There's several reasons I'm doing this. One, because it's been brought back before our attention. I want you to be able to defend what we believe. Two, I want to show you an example of a fable that is competing for sound doctrine. Third, I want you to review with me how we study the Bible. Four, I want our men that are going to another part of the world to be established in this position. Five, Albert Moeller, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and a pretty serious blogger, who at this time is the president of the largest Southern Baptist seminary, blogged in the last couple of days a wonderful piece against the Noah movie. But I had to write him, because while he's blasting the daylights at a Darren Aronofsky about the Noah movie, he was allowing for these watchers. So yesterday I wrote him, and I wrote him a few months ago, and I may have told you and I may not have told you he had had a few pieces on expository preaching, and he hadn't included Nehemiah chapter 8, which by far is the number one passage in the Bible about expository preaching. Because it says in that place, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That's expository preaching. And uh, he included that in the next blog or the one thereafter. And he says at the bottom of every blog, please contribute if you can. Dear Brother Moeller, we thank God for your writing in the last few days against Aronofsky's Noah and your analysis of the Christian penumbra in the New York Times. That was another blog that was very well done. You wrote well and passionately about Aronofsky's distortion, perversion of the biblical Noah history. The idea of Nephilim, Nephilim, as generally understood, is just as foolish and or wicked. Merely a fable Q-tip for itching ears. Here are a few thoughts against such a corruption of the Genesis text with nine conservative commentators from previous centuries included for the cause of God and truth in the perilous times of the last days. So, your pastor is a little worked up about this subject. There's two documents on our website. There's 107 slides that I'm about to go through very fast. There's a 14-page paragraph document that leads you through 45 reasons why we do not believe that Nephilim resulted from the sons of God being angels coming down and having sexual intercourse with human females. So let's go through these slides and remind ourselves of something that we believe. Remind ourselves of how we study the Bible. Remind ourselves that people today would rather hear and talk about this than about the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it's disgusting. Nephilim. Who were the sons of God? Are the three questions that we want to answer. Who were the sons of God in Genesis 6? What was their sin? And what happened? We, we can, 
Isn't it wonderful for the Lord to give us such a, a perspective on the Word of God that we can boil it down to three little questions and answer these? Brethren, there's another reason why I'm doing this. If you'll remember from two years ago, and some of you are very sharp, but there are other children in here that are just growing up, and some people that are sitting in here weren't here two years ago. But there is a lesson in Genesis chapter 6 that is totally lost if you are distracted with angel-human offspring. Do you remember that? Okay. It's a huge lesson. Why did God drown this earth? Because of one particular sin more than all the rest. And it's one that every one of you parents and grandparents face with your children. Genesis 6. Let's go through it because I want you to be familiar with the passage. Verse 1 of Genesis 6. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. Are you familiar with it? Many, many Christians today think that this expression, sons of God, and sons of God here are angels that came down and took wives and had sex with human females, and the resulting offspring were giants and men of renown. I want you to know this. This is a side item. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Do you know that there are people that think because you don't eat right and you don't exercise right that you're not reaching God's potential for human longevity, that it was set at 120 years by God to Noah? That 120 has absolutely nothing to do with human longevity. It's how long God was going to wait in His long suffering, is what it's called in 1 Peter chapter 3, before He drowned the world. From Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, until when the water came was 120 years. And that gave Noah and his sons time to put together a decent-sized boat in their backyard and get all the animals together for it. That's what that 120 is for. Don't let somebody tell you, you know, if you'll go into a GNC and buy a Bible collection of herbs and minerals that you'll live to be 120. No, you won't. That's not what that's about at all. It's it's that there were 120 years till the flood came. Okay, there's Genesis 6. Sons of God are angels, according to them. They came down, had sex with the daughters of men. Giants resulted. What are the Nephilim? Well, there's... I I pulled this off the internet because I I was trying to figure out what a Nephilim must look like. And this popped up under Nephilim. You say, really? Well... Their imagination is as good as yours, and yours is as good as theirs. Because no one's ever seen a Nephilim, and especially because there is no such thing as a Nephilim. Here is a a mummy that was on display somewhere, and you can tell by the uh, 18 steps of this ladder there that it's probably 14 feet tall. If we give 8 or 9 inches per step on that ladder. 
Um, you know, I, I hope you can notice a full-grown male here and a full-grown male here. Now that guy's probably 30 feet tall, but uh, that's a pretty big giant there. And if you go on the internet, you're going to be able to find pictures like this. See the skull? See the rib cage? That's a big dude. He, he could play in the NBA and dunk a 30-foot goal instead of a 10-foot goal. He wouldn't need any vertical jump at all. He's already vertical. So they come up with pictures like this. For those of you that can't read, down, I mean, can't read because it's small. Down here it says, <laughs> yes, one more thing about our crazy church. We are all illiterates. Early Canaanite giants scale. See Amos chapter 2 and verse 9. Yes. Why don't we? This is the Og of Bashan, the Goliath scale. So here's this little six foot dude. I think he's pretty big because I got sawed off at 5'9". And here's a 12 footer, 18 footer and so forth. You can find pictures like this when you look up Nephilim. They're wanting to show you the people that were on earth back then. You know, poor Goliath. He'd be intimidated even to look at this slide. Because he was only nine feet tall. You know, he's in here between the midget and the 12 footer. This is, people would rather have, anybody been to YouTube and type in Nephilim? Is any, Joshua, James? You can just listen to stuff and look at pictures on and on and on. They would rather talk about this stuff than the Lord of glory. Right. Do you remember this guy? Robert? Yep. He was 8 foot 11 inches. He's got two little short girls there. Make him really look tall. 8 foot 11 inches. The, the high, tallest man that has been able to be proven since men began recording how tall men get. This is who I think the Nephilim are. This is the diesel. Anybody know who the guy on the right is? Shaquille O'Neal. He looks like a Nephilim to me. Look at that poor little guard from an opposing team that's going to try to drive the ball. Or is this Nephilim? Some people think these are Nephilim. That the UFOs flying around are because of the DNA brain increase that resulted from angels having sex with humans. So they look like this when they get off. But back to the watcher. Now the watcher is a word from what book of the Bible in our King James? The book of Daniel. It is another name for angels because they're watching all of our activities. And this is called a watcher in the movie, the Noah movie. They helped Noah build the ark. They helped defend Noah. And when they died, their spirits went back to heaven. Just part of the corruptions of a blaspheming atheist that put that movie together to undermine the authority of God's word and to make himself a whole lot of money. What is an atheist making an epic based on the Bible for? Because he wants to do what Mel Gibson did and make a bunch of money. And why would a Christian go to watch what an atheist puts together about the Bible? Why not just go listen to another sermon from their pastor? What are the Nephilim? That's what the Nephilim are. A giant fable Q-tip for pleasuring the itching ears of carnal Christians. Because look what the Bible says. This is the passage I've started out with this evening. And some of you have already heard it twice, but now's the third time. For the time will come. It wasn't in Paul's day and it wasn't in Timothy's day. 
But we're watching it all around us. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to put up with it. They don't have the patience for it. They don't find it interesting. They don't find it helpful. They don't want it. But after their own lusts, notice what drives them. Their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers. There's no shortage of teachers today that will teach on the Nephilim. There is a shortage of teachers that will blast against the Nephilim. Having itching ears. This is what the Bible says. Their ears are itching to hear something new. Some fable. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. Notice, they are turning. Uh, And it was, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The Bible tells us that there is going to be a degeneration, or there was going to be a degeneration of Christianity, and we are living in it. Rightly dividing the word of truth is the solution. Faithful Christians mark and avoid all heretics. That's what we've been learning. So we're doing that right now. One of them is Albert Moeller that I've already mentioned. More sure, and that is a description of our Bibles according to 2 Peter 1, 19, is only as good as the interpretation of the Bible. Do we agree on that? We must follow rules of study to interpret the Bible correctly. We rightly divide words for the sense. Many have learned that verse. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study. Study. Show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We want the sense, not the sound of words. We don't care about the sound of words. We don't care if it's the same word in a verse in the New Testament and the same word in a verse in the Old Testament. We're going to look at its context to see if the meaning is the same. The sense of that word is the same. We don't care about the sound of it. We don't want sound bites. We want meanings of words. Nehemiah 8.8 is the verse I've already quoted to you. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. And that's what we want to do with the Word of God. We must interpret soberly. If we're foolish or hasty, heresies will result. The same word in different places means little. The same word means little. Words may have one, two, three, or more senses. Do you know that about words? Do you remember from the first, second, third grade? I can't, I don't know how advanced your schooling was. When you'd be in a spelling bee and you'd say, Miss Chapman, would you please use that in a sentence for me? Why were you doing that? Because context determines what word's actually under consideration, not the sound of it. Did you ever do that? I need that word used in a sentence. Look at this. The word board. Is a board a piece of wood? What do you use pins in a board? Give me the connection. A bulletin board. Thank you. Is board food? Room and board. What does that little hint help you think of? Board of directors. Thank you, Matthew. How do you get on the ship? All aboard. You board the ship. You board a plane. You board a train. Are there board games? Now, is that is that one word? Do you want to hear that one used in a sentence before you give an explanation or a definition of it? You sure do. Mm -hmm. Saved. A very key word in the Bible has five senses and more. When Paul said that every soul shall be saved, in Acts chapter 27, is that a sixth sense compared to how we use the five phases? 
saving from being drowned on that ship. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. There's so many dead giveaways in here. Who's he striving with? The angels for coming down and corrupting the DNA of the human race? Or is he striving with man? 45 reasons why we don't believe in Nephilim, but I'm not going over them tonight. We're just going to race through this and remind ourselves of the lesson that is totally lost by those people that even want to say that word. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. Notice the sons of God. It's twice in this passage of four verses. Genesis chapter 6, 1 and 4, those two occurrences of the sons of God. You see it? You know that they're there. You've read your Bible. You know how Genesis 6 starts out. I've read it to you twice now. I'm showing it to you again right now. The phrase, the sons of God. Now in Job, chapter 1 and verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Job 2.1 And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In these three occurrences, we have the phrase, the sons of God, all over again in the book of Job. Does Genesis sons of God equal Job sons of God? This is a pretty big question. Does the Genesis... Hey, it's spelled the same. When you say it, It sounds the same. When I look it up, it's defined the same. Unless we look at the context to find out that it's a different kind of sons of God. I hope all of my young men are listening. I know I went over it two years ago. And I hope that those who have any ambition to really knowing the word of truth will take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and read through the 45 reasons why we do not believe in Nephilim and that you will look at the quotations that I've already pulled out for you of the nine conservative commentators of the past 400 years that we trust and get the lesson of how we use the Bible because God has been very merciful to us. We don't let the sound of words bother us. We don't let the sound of words intrigue us. We want the sense of those words. They sound the same. This phrase, sons of God, this phrase, sons of God, they're spelled the same. They're defined by a dictionary the same. But we need to rightly divide the word of truth because that's what Paul said Timothy better do or he's going to be ashamed in his doctrine. We want to be approved of God. But they do not have any connection whatsoever. The sons of God in Job and the sons of God in Genesis are entirely unrelated. Because of the context. We had six uses back there for the word board and all you would have to have is a sentence about that word, how it was being used, and you would know that it had a different meaning. And here we have a different meaning. What are the Nephilim? Rightly dividing the word of truth is what we're trying to do. Now, Genesis 6-4, there were giants 
in the earth in those days. I'm going to show you where the word Nephilim comes from. Because if you go to YouTube or you go anywhere or you hear anybody that's familiar with this subject, they're going to call these giants Nephilim. But we are talking about the King James Bible. In Genesis 6-4, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And in, in Numbers 13, when the ten spies, twelve spies went out and came back to report to Moses and the nation of Israel that the land of Canaan certainly was a beautiful and wonderful land, they made this statement, there we saw the giants. So we've got these two occurrences of the word giants. Now what's in between that involved a little bit of water? The flood. Okay, the flood took place between Genesis and Numbers, and we've got giants in both places. And that's the King James Version, so we don't have Nephilim in our King James Bibles. But when we open up the NIV and all the related cousins to it, we find Genesis 6-4 reading this way, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Numbers 13, we saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. The Nephilim. This is where it comes from. Not in a King James Bible, but in other Bibles. That's where the, that's why if you ever hear the word, what it means, what they look like. Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, this is what they look like. Yes. This is what they look like. Because no one's ever seen one. And remember, there never was one. There are no Nephilim. It is an invention of the NIV and other bad Bibles that want to put words in there that they don't know what they mean. There isn't a scholar on earth, nor is there a scholar that has ever lived that believes that Nephilim has much of a meaning. Nephilim is a transliterated Hebrew word coming to English, and that original Hebrew word is so obscure, they all admit we don't know what it means for sure. It has to do something with falling. But we don't know if it means that the giants fell on people and killed them, or if they fell from heaven, or if they fell into the bottomless pit, or if God's judgment felt they have no idea. The KJV only has giants in both of the passages. The giants did not come from the sons of God. Because did you notice four words that separated the giants from the sons of God going into the daughters of men? And also after that, when you have the word... I don't know how God can quadruple the evidence I need between the first part of Genesis 6-4 and the second part of Genesis 6-4. And also after that. And requires two things. Also requires two things. After puts a time separation between the two of them. That separates them by pointing to it being a different event. And also after that. The men of renown came from the sons of God, not the giants. There were two classes. Every single one of our commentators in centuries past understood that there were two classes of persons described in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4 because God gave quadruple witness to that fact. Think about the effect the flood should have had. If there were Nephilim before the flood, we've got to ask the question, did they breathe air or not? If they breathed air, then how many of them were in existence after the flood? None. Then what are they doing in Numbers chapter 13? Because they're just giants. There are no Nephilim. What if the Nephilim are angel human mongrels? If you want more interesting reading, you can go to the 45 Reasons. I get a little more elaborate and specific on how the mongrels came into being. 
There are no Nephilim. Angels took women on both sides of the flood. If Nephilim in Genesis 6-4 refers to the offspring of angels and human females, then Nephilim in Numbers chapter 13 has to refer to the offspring of angels and human females. And somehow there's a flood in between those two events. So what are they talking about? Did Mrs. Noah have a recessive gene in her because her great-great-grandmother was a Nephilim? Once you start lying, you have to keep on lying. Did anyone learn that as a child? That once you told the first one, mom and dad were usually smart enough to ask decent enough questions that you'd have to tell number two and three? Well, once you start a lie like Nephilim, you're going to have to keep lying because you've got them on both sides of the flood. Thankfully, the King James Version only has giants on both sides. Being killed twice, once in the flood and once by the Israelites, they're only seen now in the NBA. That's to be humorous. God drowned all the Nephilim, or whatever you want to call them, that were outside the ark in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. And who took care of the sons of Anak after Numbers 13, 33? Joshua and company entered into the land of Canaan and utterly destroyed them. Caleb, if you want the name of the man who took the mountain where the Anakims lived. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Let's go over it again very fast. I want you to remember this. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. But the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. These words are just not for a rhythm in our ears, like the chanting of an Arabic prayer five times a day in every Muslim nation. All they want is the sound of that Arabic floating over loudspeakers. The three of you that are going to Malaysia in a few months, you're going to be able to hear it blasting out five times a day every day. All they want is the sound. They don't want the sense. They don't want meaning. Really, there is no meaning. So it's a sound. But when I'm reading the Word of God to you, it should be meaningful to you. It's meaningful to me. And I've read this passage a few times, especially in the last week. Verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Interesting. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. When the sons of God went into the daughters of men, did they create these by their offspring? Not a chance. They own, their, their own passage just hangs them. I love the Word of God with me. Love the Word of God. There's 45 reasons why we don't believe in Nephilim. The whole thing is ludicrous. God gave us 45 arguments or considerations on this subject. All nine commentators that I typically check for the things that uh, I teach you think it's ludicrous. Commentators don't guarantee the truth, but rejecting church history is twice profane. First of all, you come up with a lie, and second of all, everyone that's of established reputation in interpreting the Bible thinks you're a nutcase, and you ought to read some of their thoughts about Nephilim. And you say, well, none of those guys agree with us. Yes, some of them are Baptists, and two of them at least agree with our sonship doctrine. It's just one of the safeguards that I like. I don't want to be stepping out in the left field 
and believing and teaching something that is contrary to at least someone in church history. Now, I will if the Word of God tells me to, but, you know, on this subject, I don't have to, and sonship, I don't have to, and baptism, I don't have to. There have been lots of Baptists that gave their lives for the doctrine of immersion. I just want to point out to you that it's this modern generation. Remember, the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. How long do you think the average sermon was that was preached by the nine commentators that I'm referring to? Do you think it was under 20 minutes? Do you think it was over 60? Probably over 90? They will no longer endure sound doctrine. Here is the truth and the lesson. The sons of God were the righteous descendants from Seth. Eve said, when she conceived after Cain killed Abel, I have got a man from the Lord, a seed, a seed to replace Abel. His name was Seth. The daughters of men were the wicked descendants of Cain and his relatives. There was a division in the earth, right from the first two boys that were born, and the third boy that was born replaced the second boy that was killed by the first boy. God has hated his people marrying worldlings. Do you understand this? God has hated his people marrying worldlings. His seed and the devil's seed. Was there going to be a seed that was the enemy of Satan? These unholy unions resulted in successful men. You say, well, how? Well, there are a variety of explanations by bringing those two family trees together in Genesis chapter 6. But for right now, the Bible just tells us that they resulted in some mighty men. God sent the flood to kill bad sons, his sons, descendants of Seth, sons of God, that were marrying women of the world because God cannot stand that crime. And he destroyed the world to start all over again with his seed in Noah. This is the truth, and this is the lesson. And as soon as you take up the word Nephilim in your mouth, the lesson is gone. You've got angels coming down from heaven, marrying daughters of men, and the lesson is gone about the holy seed only marrying in the Lord. I'm talking about something so serious, God. Are you trying to tell me? Preacher, are you trying to tell me that God suffocated the entire planet Earth with every living creature on it because some of His children were marrying daughters of men? Absolutely and amen. Affinity. Marriage. Tying together two family trees. Let's see what God thinks about it. And with this we close. But I have more than one and I have more than two. And I have more than five, and I have more than ten. This is what God thinks, and I'm going to go fast. This is what God thinks of his people marrying worldlings. God to Abraham, and I will make thee swear by the Lord. No, this is Abraham to his servant. Excuse me. This is Abraham to his servant. Right here, Abraham to his servant. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. You will swear to me by Jehovah God, the God of heaven and the God of the earth. Do you know how serious that oath was? 
Abraham told his servants, you'll come over here and you'll put your hand under my thigh. That is a euphemism for taking his secret parts and holding the family circumcised jewels and making an oath to the God of heaven that you will not marry my son to a Canaanite even though I live in the land of Canaan. Do you under- uh, Listen, I have goosebumps saying it to you. Does anybody have goosebumps hearing it? This is the word of the Lord. Um, this is from the Bible. This is Genesis chapter 24. It is serious business. God does not want His children mingling with the seed of this world. Jesus Himself called the seed of this world the children of the devil. Affinity. Marrying. Rebecca. And Rebecca said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do me? The daughters of Heth were Hittites, living next door to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at Rebecca. This is a real mother. This is a good mother. This is a godly mother. This is a holy mother. And she is scared, and she is concerned, and she is committed. Jacob cannot marry one of these Hittite women that live next to us. He cannot marry somebody that he met at the high school prom. He cannot marry somebody that he thinks he loves. He cannot marry someone that thinks they love him. He cannot marry a daughter of the Hittites. What good shall my life do me? Affinity. Moses. Exodus chapter 34. And thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. That's how it works. Your sons take their daughters, their daughters go whoring after their gods, which eventually your sons go whoring after their gods. It corrupts the religion, the true religion on the earth. This is so serious. This is life and death. And it's death by suffocation. And it includes infants in cribs. And it includes old people in retirement homes. Everything that had the breath of life in it in the days of Noah was suffocated to death. They drowned. Affinity. Starting up here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. Now who's he addressing this to? The world at large or his church? His church. His people Israel. His nation. His beloved people. His sons and his daughters. This is how he addressed them about marrying the neighbors. The anger of the Lord will be kindled and destroy thee suddenly, Joshua. Else, they were supposed to go in and kill every single one, man, woman, child, suckling at the breast. Kill every single one of those Canaanites. Else, you know, if they didn't do that, else if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, cleave, you know, love them, the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you. And it goes on to describe the judgment that God would bring upon them. Affinity in the time of Joshua, who took the land of Canaan, and shall make marriages with them. Judges, chapter 3, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. Notice what happens when you marry worldlings that don't have the right religion. 
And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Balaam and the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord... I didn't write this. These aren't my words. There isn't a word of mine on these slides right now. These are the words of God. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, His people, for marriage, for marriage, for affinity, which is marrying. Let's read about Solomon. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. God was angry with Solomon. I don't want God angry with you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. They must marry in the Lord, marry as high as they can in the Lord, spiritually minded, truth-loving, Christ-serving, Bible-following children and sons of God and daughters of God. Nothing else will work. Affinity, Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor in abundance and joined affinity with Ahab. This isn't marrying Hittites. This isn't marrying Philistines. This is marrying cousins in the church of God. There were 12 tribes. Ten tribes were ruled by King Ahab. Two tribes were ruled by King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat allowed his son, Jehoram, to marry Athaliah, the daughter of King Ahab. Called it affinity right here. Marrying his cousin in the church. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. That is Jehoshaphat right here. Went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath. Do you hear it? Do you see it? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Jehoshaphat was one of the four best kings in the Old Testament record of Judah. Therefore, the Lord, there's wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Because he had made affinity with the house of Ahab right there. Affinity with Ahab. Affinity in the book of Ezra. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed... Look at these words. Who said that earlier in Genesis chapter 4? I've got a seed from the Lord to replace Abel. Eve did. Notice this right here. And for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. It was a terrible sin. And so Ezra called for a national day of divorce. And all these men, including some priests, divorced their wives. And the Bible wants you to know there were children involved in the marriages. Because that doesn't matter one bit to God. You know how many people say, well, we stuck together until the children were grown. Well, what a bunch of hateful people. Who cares about the children being grown when they have two parents at home that hate each other? The solution is, right here, a national day of divorce when they had married wrong. And there were children involved. It was a national day of divorce overseen by Ezra in order to get the people of God back on a right footing with God. This is the same event. This is Nehemiah. 
the leader of the Jews that came back from Babylon to reestablish the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And he's talking about what he did. I contended with them. I contended with them. That's, that's to fight. And cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. This is what a real preacher does when it comes, when somebody comes to him and says, Will you marry me and my boyfriend? That's what a real preacher does. You say, well, that's just not good pulpit manner. <laughs> to fight with them and curse them and hit them and rip off their hair and make them swear by God. You say, I've never heard of anything like this. You're, you're twisting the... No, you live in a twisted generation. There's a bunch of little girls in pulpits that don't require what the Bible requires. Do you think Joel could preach a sermon like this? Do you think Joel would preach a sermon like this? If Joel properly defined an eligible husband and wife, how many would there be in his 30,000? It'd be a negative number. Because you've got to include the staff. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, no king like Solomon, who was beloved. God loved Solomon. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. The seed of God has been corrupted so many times by his children marrying daughters of the world. Malachi, Judah hath dealt treacherously. And an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord. The holiness of the Lord is maintained by marrying the proper person, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. These recovered Jews, and I've just preached through Malachi to you a few weeks ago. Notice that it's called treachery, it's called an abomination, it's called profanity against the holiness of God to marry someone that isn't a holy child of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, The wife is bound with the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. So when the Bible says you can marry whoever you want to marry, it is to be understood you can only marry someone that is in the Lord. Someone that believes the same things you do, acts the same ways you do, assembles in a church like yours, participates in the worship of God, follows the Lord Jesus Christ, hates the world and loves holiness and righteousness. First Corinthians 11, very similarly. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. It's good for a man and a woman to get together, but only in the Lord. In the Lord. Second Corinthians 6, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What a simple statement about marriage. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And if you go on and read the rest of that passage, God describes that if you'll do this, I will come, I will be your God, I will be your Father, you will be my people, you will be my children, I will never leave you, I will dwell with you, I will keep you. There's seven promises there in Second Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And the last one, James 4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. If you're a friend of the world and you marry their children, you're an enemy of God, according to James 4.4. 4. 
This adultery up here and these adulteresses, spiritual adultery, spiritual adulteresses, because you're leaving God to flirt, to marry, and to have children with his enemies. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. New Testament. This is serious business. I want to make some commendations to this church. And we end. To all members who waited to marry in the Lord, I commend you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of our God and the preservation of our religion in the perilous times of the last days. All members who waited to marry in the Lord, the Lord has mercifully provided as we obeyed. We've seen it over and over again. You obey. You love this message. You practice this message. You exalt this message. God will provide. He has provided over and over. And we're very thankful. Keep up the tradition in your families for Him. This tradition goes all the way back to the very beginning of the world. And we want to remember it. They had kept separate family lines for a good while until they began to multiply in the face of the earth and the sons of God, the children of God, began to see the daughters of men were so fair and they compromised their convictions and married among them. And God drowned the earth with a flood. We can hardly be too strict in this key area. How could we be too strict? It'd be better to be single for the rest of your life than to marry someone that is of the world's religions. Period. There isn't even a question about that. Lord, look upon us for good in this holy matter. Lord, have mercy upon us. Now notice, if we go into Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and come up with Nephilim, What's the lesson of Genesis 6, 1 through 4? And why did God drown the world? Because angels were bad? Why didn't he drown heaven? It doesn't make any sense. The lesson is lost. This is how we study the Bible. How can a president of the largest Baptist seminary in this country, who is good, a good writer, he stands where we stand in a number of issues. How can he allow for watchers? Because a whole generation is shifting to fables against sound doctrine. I commend all of you that have waited. I've been here for 30 years now in Greenville. I love the marriages that we have here and seeing the fruit of them and the joy of them and knowing that we're being faithful to the Lord in the ones that we've married. May the Lord bless our study tonight. For those of you that would like to see a little bit more and reason through it, just go to our website, type in Nephilim, and you'll have two options. One's this PowerPoint presentation, and the other is a 14-page document of paragraph material that goes through 45 reasons why we don't believe in Nephilim. I've only mentioned four or five tonight. Please stand with me.